0: Welcome everyone to the Asian Voices radio podcast, where you'll find real Asian American conversations, including the topics you were too afraid to ask your Asian parents. I'm your host, Linda Schwartz. And on today's show, we will learn about a nonprofit organization that's been serving low-income immigrant at-risk youth and families in Los Angeles County since 1989. And joining me today is Sabrina Chu who is the Development Grants Manager at Asian Youth Center Los
1: Angeles, or AYC LA. Welcome, Sabrina. Thank you so much for the introduction, Linda. I'm really grateful to be here and have the space to talk to folks about AYC and myself. As you mentioned before, my name is Sabrina Chu. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am the current Grants and Development Manager at the Asian Youth Center. We are as you mentioned, a community-based nonprofit organization located in San Gabriel. And we provide social services, education services and employment services to low-income working class immigrant youth and their families, both in the San Gabriel Valley and also in the Antelope Valley and other areas in the Los Angeles County. We have offices in San Gabriel Monterey Park, in the Animal Valley. And we also have after-school programs that take place on campus at different schools in Los Angeles Unified School District, Alhambra Unified School District, and San Gabriel Unified School District.
0: That's super wonderful. And we'll get into all of that, but I would love to learn more about you. Um, so maybe you can share a story about your background and, um, and what growing up Asian was like when you were
1: coming up. Yeah, so um, when I really think about back when I was growing up, there are things that I never really thought about back then. So the one of the interesting things about my family's immigration story is that we actually my parents immigrated twice in their lifetime, and they're both originally from Taipei, Taiwan, and They met in Bogota, Colombia, actually, as restaurant workers there. And they lived there for 10 years. They got married, and my sister was born there. And they were already immigrants there, right? And they had this decade of being immersed in a culture that was already different from their own. Both of my parents learned how to speak Spanish. My sister went to elementary school there and went through the education system there. And they had settled there for about a decade. And then I was born here. I was born in Monterey Park. We eventually moved alongside um, other members of the family to the United States. And we moved to LA, probably the late 90s, early 2000s. And I think something that, you know, I didn't really have a a, a, a clear idea of what they went through uh, doing, you know, immigrating twice, because when you when you immigrate to a a completely different country, you're pretty much starting from the beginning. And my parents started from the beginning twice. And you come to a new country, you learn the language, uh, you know, you go through the paperwork and the citizenship process, and you learn the new culture, you you know have to figure out the new um, ways of living. And so that was something that I, I personally didn't really think about until I was older. And so that was something that I never really brought up when I was young. And it was until recently that I realized that's such a interesting phenomenon that we went through, like immigrating twice. And there are a lot of other things that I never really brought up when we were young, that when I look back, I I, I feel like I, I wish I could have supported my parents more on and asked them about a lot of things like, um, you know, our, our financials, even in adulthood, I always look back and just think about how, how hard my parents worked to, you know, keep us afloat and wish I could have supported more doing that because... Uh, Again, when you immigrate twice, when there's those two layers of immigration, you leave things behind and you have to navigate all these things on your own all over again. And sometimes you lose you know the linguistic capacity, you lose sh- social support that you had in the country before you. and you know we always left things behind when um, we moved around.
0: I think the money conversation is across the board. It I don't think it's unique to people like us. I mean, I was I was poor growing up and I think the money conversation is a a universal conversation that we don't it, it's like an unspoken um Thing. It's super taboo in a lot of families, whether you grow up rich or whether you grow up poor. For rich people, I think that it's taboo because they don't want to—they don't want to speak about it because they have so much of it. And for poor people, it's like they don't want to speak about it because they don't have any of it, you know. So I think it's—I think it's a universal conversation. So what is that money conversation for you like now?
1: Yeah. Well, right now. Um both me and my sister work and we're the breadwinners. And I think it's still very uncomfortable. I I think that our relationship with money for our parents, it was just living paycheck to paycheck back then. And we really just never really planned for the future. So a lot of things that, you know, my me and my sister had to do was to manage a lot of things on our own like applying for college and applying for financial assistance that was something that we didn't know how to do back then and my parents weren't aware of a lot of government programs that are out there to help folks so me and my sister were the ones who had to navigate a lot of those things and it's really difficult when you're growing up and you look back and i always look back and think oh i can't believe like i did all of that at 15 16. Um, So I think right now the conversation is a little bit um, more, it's a little bit calmer because uh, me and my sister are fortunate enough to be in jobs where we're making actually more than our father ever made in his life and we're able to support um, the family. Mm -hmm. And I always think back and believe that I couldn't have done, done this without my parents and I'm glad to be supporting them now.
0: Yeah. I I think that, you know, what you're saying is, is amazing because I, I am one of those latch kid or latch key kids. Also, I, I had to figure a lot of things out on my own because my parents were never around. My mom was working two to three jobs, um, when I was growing up and, and, you know, we, I had to get myself on the bus and get myself back home after school. And, you know, luckily I lived in a community with other Lao kids and other Lao families. So some of those parents were home. So it was kind of like this unwritten thing that when other parents were at work, the, the other Lao parents would kind of, you know, keep an eye on their kids. So we had that kind of support, but um, you know, I also had to figure out all the like the paperwork and documentation stuff um, growing up too. So can, can you tell us a little bit how and about how and when you started working at AYCLA? Yeah.
1: So I started off working at AYC when I was still in college. So I went to Cal Poly Pomona and I was a psychology major. And at the time I was working for the after school program. So it worked out for my schedule and I started off again in direct services. So I, it's really great that I have that background in direct services that really informs my current work with grant writing and with communications. Um, another thing that I was doing while I was in college, I was also a research assistant and I did a lot of work with um, drafting historical reports about uh, Asian American data and disaggregation, how important disaggregation of data about the Asian American population. And I, during that time, I actually saw a lot of patterns and intersections of both nonprofit work and the things that I was learning about, um, the importance of uh, galvanizing the movement to disaggregate data about the Asian American population and community. AYC was founded in 1989, and the 80s were pretty much that period of time when a lot of people from the private sector, and a lot of people in government, and people in nonprofit uh, in the nonprofit sector, all kind of came together and started to really criticize the model minority myth and the you know this idea that Asian Americans are all doing really well. Educationally and financially and economically, when in reality, if we actually analyze the data and we separate out a lot of the nuances, we see that there are folks that you know are doing very uh, successfully or are very successful economically, but there are levels of poverty at the other end for many kind of many immigrants that really you know, either come from the refugee population or just came here with nothing, everyone has a different starting point that that has to be evaluated and services need to be provided for, to support those folks. And so as I was working as a research assistant at Cal Poly Pomona with these projects, and I was also starting to work at AYC in direct services, And then eventually moving to administration, I started seeing a lot of intersections.
0: So can you tell us or talk a little bit about what you love most about AYC and what what your mission does for these youth?
1: Yeah. So what I love the most about AYC is that it really is community-based. So back when the pandemic started shutting down businesses and schools and other public spaces... We had to shut down our after-school programs on campuses because of the safer at home order. And this meant a lot of things for everybody. It meant for many parents that they weren't going to be able to work. There was you know, a lot of loss of income and jobs. And there are a lot of students out there that rely on the food, the lunch program at their schools. And so even though a lot of those core programs had shut down at that time for us, our after school programs, our in person programming, we recognized that instead food insecurity was starting to become a major issue in the community because of economic reasons, because of lack of accessibility, because of the closure of the schools. So we expanded a pre existing. Program called our Emergency Food Program. And it operates under our education and community engagement department. And it had originally operated monthly. It was only one day per month where we had folks come on a first come, first serve basis and gave them these bags of groceries that could last pretty much that month that could make about 30 meals per bag. And it was only for that one day. And we through that we expanded so much during the pandemic because we recognized that food insecurity was a rising need. And there were other support services that we provide we provided during the pandemic. And these were all, you know, pre existing barriers that low income families, immigrant families were facing even before the pandemic. But because of, you know, loss of jobs and income and Public spaces being closed down, it really exacerbated a lot of those issues. So, we expanded the emergency food program to daily operations. Uh, We went from one day per month to operating Monday through Friday from eight to four. And then we shifted to Tuesday through Saturday because parents and families were telling us they could only come in during on Saturday to pick up food. So, we really based a lot of our operations off the needs of the community. And we asked online and through newsletters and through many campaigns for folks to help us sustain the program and help each other out, you know, help the community out and people would come in with in-kind donations of food, of fresh groceries, canned foods, even um, meat and frozen foods. to make sure that everybody was being taken care of that everybody had access to food and eventually we also had expanded to distributing PPE there were you know there was a there was a limitation in how much PPE and certain hygiene products that people could buy back then so we started getting donations from community members our neighbors of masks and baby wipes and diapers. And those were things that people were asking for. And so every time somebody had a request for something, we tried our best to, with our resources and our our connections, got those things so that they could be given to the community. So it was really a time where AYC became a central location where people were Coming together to help each other, and I think that's something that was, that that was really kind of kind of positive that came out through the closure of, um, or through the pandemic that people were, were starting to show up for each other. And yeah, so since March 2020 to March 2021, we distributed over 400,000 meals to families in the community. Um, when originally we had only probably distributed maybe sixty bags per month and I think seeing that growth is really great.
0: That's pretty awesome. Um and you know, for me what came forward while you were sharing that is that, you know, in times of need and in times of in hard times the only thing that we have to do to bring community together is to ask and i love that you created this community support um and came through for so many families and so many people um during a time of need and you know i i, I and i think that's the one thing that i love most about most nonprofit organizations is how um how much support and love comes pouring in when you ask. And 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 sometimes, you know, like for me, I, I'm somebody who's been self-sufficient for a really long time, and I rarely ever ask for help even when I need it the most. And so I think that, you know, um, these community offerings that you have – um, support people in such a humble and loving way, and and I want to commend you for that. I I love that that's part of your mission. Um, so yeah, you know I I see here that that AYC has grown from serving fewer than a hundred youth in a small geographic area to serving uh, over almost a third of LA County. Um, what? Can you talk a little bit about the services you provide and, and um, if they're available for everyone or just the Asian community?
1: Yeah, I think you you brought up a really great point, too, about um, asking for help. I think that on a personal level, that's something I've always struggled with. And that's something I've shared with a lot of folks, especially now. Um, if we want to talk about taboo topics, um <laughs> from when I was young, I think asking for help was another one of those things. I, I think I've always tried to figure things on my, figure out things on my own. And it's always been really difficult personally to ask for help. And I I always wonder if that's part of, of the culture and of being an immigrant and needing to find things out on your own. And also, um, just being really self-sufficient and independent, but not realizing that there are people out there that will will help you out if you ask for it. So um, I'm really glad you brought that up because I, I really do relate to that as well. And yes, to answer your question, um, AYC, when we first started in 1989, again, uh, the 80s, a really big time for Asian American politics, I think, and um, importance of addressing um, gaps in need for Asian American communities. We started off, yes, really small. Uh, I think about a hundred individuals in a small geographic area. I think it was like Rosemead and the surrounding cities and we grew so much. And I think some of, one of the really great things about community-based organizations is when the, that, institution is existing in a certain community, it it benefits the entire community. And in San Gabriel, I believe we have about a majority of our population is foreign born. So a lot of immigrants uh, that are living in San Gabriel and the surrounding areas. I think, I believe about 30% of folks are asian language speaking and then 30 or more and then t- about 20% are spanish speaking. So that reflects our staff as well. Like 80% of our staff is bilingual in spanish and chinese mandarin or cantonese and vietnamese or just another non-english language. And last year we actually served 46% asian pacific islander folks and Latino folks, Um, 15% of the people we served or worked with were African-American. So our community is the people that we work with, the people that we empower really reflects the demographic of the area and our staff also reflects that demographic. So that's one of the great things about AYC is that we provide culturally competent, linguistically appropriate services because with programs such as after school programs you want tutors that can speak to the families that are coming every day to pick up their kids and for the emergency food program you want to be in a you want to be at a facility where the person who is helping you is speaking your language and knows what kind of food you like at home you might be cooking at home and that is a sense of safety and belonging and community for a lot of people. So, I think that's one of the reasons why AYC, even though our name is the Asian Youth Center, we've never, we've never um, limited our services or programs to, from like to anybody. Um, so, yeah, again, I think when community-based um, organizations are on the ground working, they benefit everybody in the community. And another thing that's really interesting since you brought that up is my when I was working as a research assistant in college and I was actually drafting historical reports about ANA PCs. And ANAPC stands for Asian American, Native American, Pacific Islander Serving Institutions. And to explain what they are, they're kind of like what we call minority-serving institutions, MSIs, like Hispanic-serving institutions, HSIs, and HBCUs, historically Black college and universities. And that's kind of what ANAPCs are. And when a college or university is designated by the government as an ANAPC, it opens that school to funding that helps refine the capacity of that certain institution to serve students, all students, um, whether it's language-based programs or culturally competent services that address the gap in needs for students that may fall under that population. And there's a myth or there's something kind of controversial or kind of mythological that was brought up back then is that on a pc's when a college is designated as a on a pc it can only be it can only be um, designated as an on a pc and not anything else when in truth a lot of hs is are also designated as on a pcs and those are dual designations. And one of those examples is uh, PCC, Pasadena City College. And there's also a myth that the funding that um, colleges receive is only used to benefit the population that is described in the designation, but actually the funding is meant for capacity building. Meaning if you use it to improve programs and services in the college, it benefits everybody at that Institution. So that's how I kind of think about um, nonprofit work as well. I think organizations like AYC were constantly being molded by the needs of the community and everyone who belongs to that community. And when an organization like AOIC exists, it benefits everybody. And as someone whose family came from a Latin American country, I think there's also a lot of overlap in what really is considered Asian and something else.
0: That's great. Um so I I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and and talk a little bit about your the founding members and the people on um, staff and and on the board of AYCLA. So I just recently learned that one of the founding members is Congresswoman Judy Chu. Um, she became or you know, prior to her being elected to Congress. So, who are some of the key members and key personnel who currently work at AYC? Can you talk a little bit about that and share with us who they are?
1: Sure. So yeah, our founding members include May Toe and Judy Chu. Uh, they started AYC in 1989 currently our so Mato was our former executive director and our current executive director is Michelle Farage. She's really great to work with. She was originally the development director in 2002 and she became executive director in 2012. And she has 20 years of experience in direct services and basically nonprofit management. So she's really great to work with. And um, we also have our deputy director, Alex Bond. He's from San Francisco, uh, did a lot of work uh, with the local government there. And he he actually was originally from the SUV and recently came back to work for us. So it's always really great to see that the staff that are working at AYC are part of the community that uh, that we work with. I love that AYC
0: offers these types of programs um, for the youth today.
1: Can Can you tell us a little bit about the services you provide? Some of the really exciting things going on right now with AYC are definitely our Stop Hate projects. So it's really a series of initiatives that we're taking to really address anti-Asian sentiments and rising anti-Asian harassment and violence, not only in the Singapore Valley, but nationwide, and also educate the community about you know anti-racism and social justice. So one of these projects we're partnering with Asian Americans Advancing Justice LA uh, to do bystander trainings in language. So something really great about AIC is that we do a lot of language, uh, linguistically appropriate uh, services with the bilingual staff that we have. And so these bystander trainings are being offered in Mandarin for the Chinese speaking community in the San Gabriel Valley and to anybody who needs it really. And we're also partnering with APCON. So that's Asian-Pacific Policy and Planning Co- Council, APCON, to do a lot of COVID-19 education outreach for Spanish-speaking population and Chinese-speaking populations in the Gabriel Valley. Um, that includes vaccination education, connecting people to uh, vaccinations, uh, dispelling myths about the COVID-19 vaccinations, and... Uh, the pandemic. And another thing we're partnering with Asian Americans Advancing Justice LA with is a community survey that's been distributed through phone banking, through online outreach, through text banking to almost 200,000 community members in the San Gabriel Valley to kind of gauge perceptions and collect personal accounts and experiences about anti-racism and anti-Asian sentiments and perceptions of what kind of services and programs could be provided to address those things. So that's a survey that has gone out during the summer and hopefully by late fall we'll have data disseminated and published so that it can inform AYC's work moving forward as well as the work of local leaders and other organizations, and that's data that we really want to put out there and uh, be able to um, utilize so that we can develop programs and services that directly address those needs and concerns. And lastly, we have our youth and parent leadership development programs, YPLD programs, on dream centers in high schools located in Los Angeles Unified School District and Alhambra Unified School District that um, during the summer they had led a summer of justice program uh, called Pass the Mic, and they had workshops to really learn about social justice and learn about different issues and they had their students and interns really culminate all of their work and everything they learned into a podcast project that uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to highlight and release and publish for folks to hear. And And then moving forward during the academic year, the the idea is that those students will also be able to take what they learn and educate faculty and educate their their peers and really pass along that knowledge. And so those are the things that are kind of we're working on right now in terms of addressing anti-Asian violence and, you know, fostering a community that is social justice based and also youth driven and youth led. That's super wonderful.
0: Thank you, Sabrina, for coming on the show to share your personal story
1: along with all the wonderful programs and services at Asian Youth Center. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for giving me the space to speak and uh, educate folks about what AYC does. And um, I just really appreciate the time.
0: Nonprofit organizations play a vital role in strengthening and building healthy communities by providing critical educational health and social services and programs that contribute to economic stability and mobility on behalf of asian voices radio listeners i want to thank you sabrina and everyone at asian youth center los angeles for all the work that you do to learn more about aycla and their programs please visit aycla.org don't forget to subscribe to asian voices radio as well as follow us on facebook twitter and instagram and join us next week for another exciting and thought-provoking asian voices radio show until next week I'm Linda Schwartz. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody.